Um, this is really a continuation of our uh, subjects from last time. And this is a verse we didn't have time to get to last week. It's in Ezekiel. It's uh, rather surprising, perhaps. But uh, God here is describing the rebellion again and again and again. And uh, then we have these words. I did this because they had rejected my commands, profaned the Sabbath, and worshipped the same idols their ancestors had served. And then I gave them laws that are not good and commands that do not bring life. I think last time we read some of the laws that are not good and the commands that do not bring life. Uh, again, we tend to think of inspiration as, boy, everything, it's, it's on the same level. You read it in Deuteronomy, Job or John, and we're all right there on the same pure level of truth and revelation. But here we see God condescending to give laws that are not good and commands that do not bring life. Again, when your parents, you will uh, understand this quite well. You need to give some rather unusual rules sometimes in the home that, um, that don't necessarily give life, but they're necessary for that time. So our subject uh, today is uh, violence and fighting. I'm going to try to understand here. God gives all these commands for war. Now, how do we apply this today? Uh, first of all, if you've ever had the chance to read through the Bible quickly, it's um, really a, a wonderful thing. You can kind of keep it all in mind, and I remember the first time uh, Dorothy and I did this, we were reading through rather quickly, we got through Deuteronomy and got into Joshua, and in that setting, this is actually a rather funny verse. You remember, rebellion, 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 that's all we've been talking about for the last several months. Okay, now Moses has passed away, and they're entering the promised land, and the people said to Joshua, we will do everything you have told us, and we'll go anywhere you send us, we will obey you, just as we always obeyed Moses. How did Joshua feel at that moment? Wouldn't you love to have a picture of his face just to see what, um, how did he take that? May the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever questions your authority or disobeys any of your orders will be put to death. Be determined and confident. Okay, uh, the last part of this here uh, we'll come back to. But I think it's worth noting. Their conception of justice was you disobey Joshua, uh, you should be put to death. Well, we skip fast forward to the very end of the book. Joshua gives a sermon just before his death, and he said, Now then, honor the Lord and serve him sincerely and faithfully. Get rid of the gods which your ancestors used to worship in Mesopotamia. Now, if he's having to tell them, get rid of them, uh, wouldn't that suggest they still have them? If you are not willing to serve him, decide today whom you will serve, the gods your ancestors worshipped in Mesopotamia or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. As for my family and me, we will serve the Lord. Of course, a, a famous verse there. But again, he's telling them, get rid of the gods that you still have. Okay, he's trying to call them to decision. And if we skip on just a few chapters here, the beginning of Judges, we read that the Lord's servant Joshua died at the age of 110. He was buried. That whole generation also died. And the next generation forgot the Lord and what he'd done for Israel. And the book of Judges tells, uh, it gets, gets very depressing. Um, here, as that generation truly did forget God. Okay, but we're in Joshua. And remember, we've uh, mentioned several times two ways of reading books like this. And we should use both approaches. Okay, they're both needed. But one is the high road. Remember, the high road approach is where we, we kind of stick with the, the stuff that's positive and uh, hopeful, inspirational. 
Okay, and so uh, something that would be worthwhile spending time talking about, which we won't today, is how God really was with Joshua. God said, no one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous. Okay, these are, these are hopeful, encouraging words. We could talk about Rahab and what she did. Um, thought for a while we could talk about the ethics of lying under certain circumstances, but, but we won't do that today. We could talk about Caleb, okay, how he and Joshua were the two that were faithful and uh, all the remarkable things that Caleb did even after getting into the promised land. Okay, this would be the high road approach. Okay, but if we were just going to go through that today, it, it would really miss 99% of what the book of Joshua talks about. And what the book of Joshua talks about is military conquest and campaign. Okay, it's one battle after another. So starting with Jericho. Okay, this is the first city conquered here in the promised land. Again, well, we could put this in a high road approach. Uh, they do in the um, Sunday and Sabbath school. You know, you have Jericho. Uh, our kids did this a while ago. They stacked up milk cartons and marched around. The walls fall down. Okay, God was with them. Wonderful story. Okay, is it really a wonderful story? Well, it is uh, wonderful that God was with them, and clearly God helped them. But we just read what actually happened here. The priests blew the trumpets. As soon as the people heard it, they gave a loud shout, and the walls collapsed. Then all the army went straight up the hill into the city and captured it. With their swords, they killed everyone in the city, men and women, young and old. They also killed the cattle, sheep, and donkeys. What do you think it does to a person? Now, we're not dropping bombs from the sky, but to have to go from room to room, hut to hut, to kill the women, kill the babies. Uh, would that have an effect on a person, to do that over and over, even the animals? Um, was there no other way to take over the promised land than to slaughter everyone who stood in the way? Should this trouble us, that we have God helping them to, to do these things? Okay, this is, this is what I want to try to grapple with today. First, let's talk about the story of Achan briefly. Of course, you remember the command was, wipe everything out in Jericho. Okay, and Achan disobeyed. The people of Israel proved to be disloyal about the things claimed by the Lord. Achan, a member of the tribe of Judah, took something that had been claimed by the Lord. So the Lord became angry with the people of Israel. And you'll remember what happened. They went out to fight Ai, and God wasn't with them. And they couldn't understand why they were defeated. And it turns out it was because of what Achan had done. And so they draw lots. And you remember, it starts out with the tribe of Judah, and it gets closer and closer and closer. And I always imagine how Achan felt as he kept seeing things narrow down on him. And of course, finally, Achan was chosen. So Joshua sent some men who ran to the tent and found that the condemned things really were buried there with the silver at the bottom. They brought them out of the tent and took them to Joshua and all the Israelites and laid them down in the presence of the Lord. Joshua, along with all the people of Israel, seized Achan, the silver, the cloak, the bar of gold, together with Achan's sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys, and sheep, his tent, and everything else he owned. And they took them to Trouble Valley. And Joshua said, Why have you brought such trouble on us? The Lord will now bring trouble on you. All the people then stoned Achan to death, and they also stoned and burned his family and possessions. They put a huge pile of stones over him, which is there to this day, 
And that is why that place is still called Trouble Valley, and the Lord was no longer angry. So uh, maybe just a, a couple questions here that are maybe troubling for some. On Aiken's story, is it, is it rather severe to stone someone to death for uh, disobeying God? Well, we read through some of the commands. Sabbath breakers, stoned to death. Rebellious children, stoned to death. Uh, we read through some of the things that were commanded about women last time. Um, a difficult subject, but maybe if we could just bring out one point on this issue. Remember the, the people's conception of justice going into the promised land is this. Joshua, whoever questions your authority, Joshua, or disobeys any of your orders will be put to death. So again, their understanding is you, you disobey Joshua, that should result in death. Now, what did the people done in this case? Who had they disobeyed? Disobeyed God. God gave the command. Achan disobeyed. So if, again, if the conception is you disobey Joshua, you're deserving of death. What should happen if you disobey God? Uh, does God, again, is, is, does God meet people at their conception of justice, even if that's warped? I, I told this story uh, some time ago. Uh, Tim Jennings told this initially, but it was helpful to me. Uh, I think this was in Iraq several years ago where a grocer um, had the audacity to put celery sticks next to tomatoes. And this was felt by someone to be uh, quite a horrible thing because it could be interpreted as an erect male. And so he was killed. Everyone who worked in the grocery store was killed. Okay? And that's, that's now the standard of justice. That's really bad if you do that. Now, just imagine you're going to be governor of this city. And you're going there. You want to have some laws. You want to you know, create order in this area. And the, the standard is celery sticks, sticks next to tomatoes. That's really bad. Now, you want to make a law about, let's say, drunk driving. You think that's bad. Now, how are you going to make a meaningful rule about drunk driving in parallel to the standard, which is the really bad thing is celery sticks next to tomatoes. I mean, a $300 fine and three days in jail, that, wouldn't, that would seem to put it much less severe than celery sticks next to tomatoes. Okay, so I think uh, what we see in the Bible often is a, a warped distortion of justice or a sense of justice. Uh, does God actually meet people who are thinking that things should be that way? If the standard is you just disobey Joshua, you're deserving of death, um, what should be now the rule for if you disobey God? Another difficult question would be, well, okay, if we have to stone Achan, fine, but why did the kids, even the pets, okay, why did they have to die as well? And again, this is a time and culture very, very different than our own. And uh, the concept here, which is, I think, very helpful, known as corporate personality. Okay, this is a quote from a book here in 1964 called Corporate Personality in Ancient Israel. And, and here's the concept. The extension of a person's personality beyond himself in time and space. In other words, the effect of a person's sin extended beyond himself to affect others in a family or tribe, even when the one who committed the sin was dead and gone. So in other words, uh, today we are extremely individualistic. Uh, that was not the way people viewed things back then. Uh, the family was one. 
Okay, it would have been totally uh, unheard of for just Achan to have been punished by this. His person, his personality extended to the entire family. Okay, so again, in their mind here, you don't just punish the man, it was the whole family. Okay, and it, just as evidence of this, uh, remember the whole nation was punished for this. If we read to the end of Joshua, uh, coming back to the story of Achan, Joshua said, remember how Achan refused to obey the command about the things condemned to destruction. The whole community of Israel was punished for that. Achan was not the only one who died because of his sin. Remember, they went out to Ai, and those people hadn't stolen things. They hadn't done anything wrong, okay, but they suffered as well. Okay, so again, the, the concept in the day of uh, this corporate uh, personality, not individualistic. Okay, but let's come back here to the major issue of uh, wars and fighting. I'm just going to read through a few of the battles quickly so you get a sense of this, and then we'll discuss the issue. In Joshua 8, the Lord said to Joshua, Take all the soldiers with you and go on up to Ai. Don't be afraid or discouraged. I will give you victory over the king of Ai. His people, city, and the land will be yours. The Israelites in the city now came down to join the battle. So the men of Ai found themselves completely surrounded by Israelites, and they were all killed. No one got away, and no one lived through it except the king of Ai. He was captured and taken to Joshua. The Israelites killed every one of the enemy in the barren country where they had chased them. Then they went back to Ai and killed everyone there. Joshua kept his spear pointed at Ai and did not put it down until every person there had been killed. The whole population of Ai was killed that day, 12,000 men and women. The Israelites kept for themselves the livestock and goods captured in the city, as the Lord had told Joshua. Joshua burned Ai and left it in ruins. It is still like that today. He hanged the king of Ai from a tree, left his body there until evening. At sundown, Joshua gave orders for the body to be removed, and it was thrown down at the entrance of the city gate. They covered it with a huge pile of stones, which is still there today. Okay, and it was literally one city after another. Let's skip forward a couple chapters here, chapter 10, and talk about the Amorites. The Lord made the Amorites panic at the sight of Israel's army. The Israelites slaughtered them at Gibeon and pursued them down to the mountain pass at Beth Horon. While the Amorites were running down the pass from the Israelite army, the Lord made large hailstones fall down on them all the way to Asaka. More were killed by the hailstones than by the Israelites. On the day that the Lord gave the men of Israel victory over the Amorites, Joshua spoke to the Lord. In the presence of the Israelites, he said, Sun, stand still over Gibeon. Moon, stop over Ajalon Valley. And the sun stood still, and again, not so they would have time to evangelize the heathen, but a miracle here so they have more time to kill them. And the moon did not move until the nation had conquered its enemies. This is written in the book of Jashar, a lot of these books that um, we don't have. The sun stood still in the middle of the sky and did not go down for the whole day. And uh, this theme goes all the way through. Well, we'll leave out the, all the rest of the uh, stories here in Joshua, but we read on. Um, remember, God said, don't have any king but me, but they wanted a king. And so we have Saul, and Samuel instructed Saul, go and attack the Amalekites, completely destroy everything they have, don't leave a thing, kill all the men, women, children, and babies, the cattle, sheep, camels, and donkeys. Okay, so this... This strand goes all the way through. 
And the question is, should we be bothered by it? Um, or should we, how should we feel about this? We have to contrast this with Jesus. It's, you, you, you cannot get this from Jesus in terms of a mandate that Christians are to go and, and do these things as they were done in the Old Testament. I mean, it's striking the contrast. How do we treat enemies now? Well, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, straight out of the Old Testament. God gave the rule, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But now, again, we, we have to have a, a hierarchy here. Jesus is giving us a hierarchy. It was that way, but now it isn't anymore. Okay, there was a time for that, but now is not the time for that. Here's how we treat enemies. Do not take revenge on someone who wrongs you. You've heard that it was said, love your friends, hate your enemies, but now, I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may become the children of your Father in heaven. Okay, so we, for those of us that call ourselves Christians, here it is. This is our, our mandate. Okay, so we need to struggle with why there ever was a time to kill enemies. And then Paul would say, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, Give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Do not let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. So again, is there a way, could we at least ask the question, would it have been possible to conquer the promised land by loving and serving and evangelizing the heathen that were in this area? Okay, would that have worked? Well, um, first of all, let's, let's just talk about the Canaanite nation. Okay, because we always want to understand as much as we can about the time and the culture. The promise all the way back to Abraham was that in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. For notice, the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Okay, it would seem that the, the rebellion would ripen right at this exact time. And in fact, when the people went into the promised land, it wasn't because they had learned so much. It would appear during those 40 years of wandering. Okay, here's from Deuteronomy 9. But when God pushes them out ahead of you, don't start thinking to yourself, it's because of all the good I've done that God has brought me in here to possess these nations. Actually, it's because of all the evil these nations have done. No, it's nothing good that you've done. No record for decency that you've built up that got you here. It's because of the vile wickedness of these nations that God, your God, is dispossessing them. Okay, so um, it, it would appear at this time there really was a full ripening of rebellion. Kind of like uh, we talked about with Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, and, and God would, would warn so many times about the effects, uh, the disastrous effects of uh, intermingling. So the command here to completely destroy Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, and so on, kill them so that they will not make you sin against the Lord by teaching you to do all the disgusting things that they do in the worship of their God. So the question is, what disgusting things were they doing in the worship of their gods? And we get several um, hints at this. Uh, one comes from Leviticus 18. No man or woman is to have sexual relations with an animal. That perversion makes you ritually unclean. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these acts. For notice, that is how the pagans made themselves unclean. Those pagans who lived in the land before you and whom the Lord is driving out so that you can go in. 
their actions made the land unclean. And so the Lord is punishing the land and making it reject the people who live there. They did all these disgusting things and made the land unclean, but you must not do them. Again, God is commanding them not to do something that is happening um, among the pagans. Okay, and a few chapters later in Leviticus, if any of you give one of your children to Moloch and make my sacred tent unclean and disgrace my holy name, I will turn against you and will no longer consider you my people. And what is known about Moloch is that this was the God who uh, they would heat up his hot metal hands uh, by fire and put the babies in there. Okay, that's how you would uh, honor the God Moloch. Okay, and what is known about the Canaanite religion, I'll just read a quote here. It was a, an extremely cruel religion. El had three wives who were also his sisters and who could readily step down from his eminence and become the hero of sordid escapades and crimes. Philo portrays El as a bloody tyrant whose acts terrified all the other gods and who dethroned his own father, murdered his favorite son, and decapitated his, old, his own daughter. Okay, and Baal, who we often talk about, was a son of El in, in the legend. And as the giver of rain and all fertility, he figures prominently in the Canaanite mythology in his struggle with Mot, or death, the god of drought and adversity. In his grapple with Mot, he is slain. As a consequence, a seven-year cycle of scarcity ensues. Thereupon, the goddess Anath, the sister and lover of Baal, goes in search of him, recovers his body, and slays his enemy Mot. Baal is then brought back to life and placed on Mot's throne. So this is the belief. Okay, and then we have these uh, uh, sister and spouse of Baal, Anath, and um, Astarte and Asherah, and there are all kinds of quotes uh, regarding these goddesses, okay, patrons of sex and war, sex mainly in the sensual aspect, war uh, emphasizing the, the violence and murder. Uh, there's lots of quotes about Asherah. In 1 Kings, she had made an obscene idol of fertility goddess Asherah. So there are lots of gods, but this is just a little glimpse. This was the, the picture of God, the, the types of gods that were being worshipped by the Canaanites. Okay, and so the worship practice involved meeting a temple prostitute. Okay, this is a fertility cult worship and um, very cruel violence, child sacrifice, human sacrifice, snake worship, okay, these are just some of the things that are known about the worship. Now, here's what is really sad. When you read through the account, the Israelites were tempted again and again. They wanted to worship those gods. Um, and it just is surprising. I mean, imagine here, you've got a, a chance this weekend, you could listen to Randy Roberts here at the University Church, or you've got the Temple of Baal down the road where there's child sacrifice and where you would meet a temple prostitute. And imagine you were tempted. You couldn't decide. Hmm. I mean, isn't this, uh, it's, it's shocking to think that they really were drawn to that form of worship. And so I won't read through this, but when God in this quote here in Deuteronomy 7, or through Moses, would say, don't worship, don't worship. And notice, that would be fatal. Okay, and it was fatal. And again, Deuteronomy 12, after the Lord destroys those nations, make sure that you don't follow their religious practices for that would be fatal. In other words, God knew if there's any, um, if you're joining 
with this kind of a religion in any way, it would be fatal. There had to be a separation. There was no way that these two groups could co-mingle, especially when God sees his people so attracted by that form of worship. Okay, don't try to find out how they worship their gods so that you can worship in the same way. Do not worship the Lord your God in the way they worship their gods. For in the worship of their gods, they do all the disgusting things that the Lord hates. They even sacrifice their children in the fires on their altars. Okay? And so we think of uh, our great heroes here in the Old Testament. And we refer to Solomon here as the wisest man that ever lived. Okay, even Solomon fell into this trap. Okay, this is what led to the splitting of the kingdoms here in 1 Corinthians 11. He married them, the, the women of these other nations, even though the Lord had commanded the Israelites not to intermarry with these people because they would cause the Israelites to give their loyalty to other gods. And by the time he was old, they had led him into the worship of foreign gods. And on the mountain east of Jerusalem, he built a place to worship Shemash, the disgusting god of Moab, and a place to worship Moloch. I mean, can you believe Solomon worshipped Moloch? Okay, and so again, if we even have someone like Solomon, who for a time was so devoted to God, even he is going over to the dark side here in a sense. I mean, how does God make a split? How does he keep his people out of that practice? And Solomon's son was Rehoboam. And uh, we'll read later on about the foolish things that Rehoboam did that directly led to the splitting of the kingdoms. But notice who his mother was. His mother was Nama from Ammon. If we think of Solomon with his thousand wives, or wives and concubines, uh, who spent more child-rearing time, do you think, with Rehoboam? Solomon, okay, or uh, the, the woman here who was an Ammonite? Okay, and so as we read about the kings from Solomon and on down, just a few generations, king falls off his balcony. And instead of consulting with God, he sent some messengers to consult Beelzebub, okay, God of the flies, in order to find out whether he would recover. Okay, so you've, in, in just a few generations, you've got the kings of Israel, uh, again, worshiping other gods. Okay, so it, as unthinkable as it may be to us, there was this incredible uh, attraction of God's people all the way through uh, to follow these other gods. So in Judges 2, God would describe it. I took you out of Egypt. I brought you to the land that I promised your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. You must not make any covenant with these people who live in this land. You must tear down their altars. But you have not done what I told you. You have done just the opposite. So I tell you now that I will not drive these people out as you advance. They will be your enemies and you will be trapped by the worship of their gods. And they were trapped. And so it, was, it would seem that there was really no way, I mean, God had to say that you can't associate at all with these people. Okay, but the, uh, I think another uh, equally important point we could make is that I think you could make a very good case that God didn't want them to fight in the first place. And let me give just a little bit of the evidence for that. Uh, many times, God would say th things like, don't be afraid of them, for the Lord your God will fight for you. Okay, and we have the angel of the Lord here in Exodus 23. I will send an angel ahead of you to protect you as you travel, to bring you to the place which I have prepared, for my angel will go before you and bring you into the Amorites, the Hittites, and so on, and I will cut them off. 
Okay, I won't through this, read through this long passage, but God would in other places say, hey, I'll send the hornet ahead of you to drive the people out. Okay, I'll send my angel, I'll send the hornet. Okay, and um, even when they would, when God would help them fight, we'd have a, a summary statement like this by Joshua. As you advanced, uh, I threw them into panic, or God speaking, in order to drive out the two Amorite kings, your swords and bows had nothing to do with it. Okay, and all of their conquests, I think the way God helped them conquer Jericho, I mean, just marching around and shouting and blowing some trumpets, uh, don't you think the point was, you know, you really don't need those swords and spears. I mean, just trust me and, and I'll take care of the situation. Wasn't that what they should have learned from Jericho? We don't need to build an army. Okay, we've got God on our side. And um, so after they would conquer cities and, and we read this and we're troubled, but I think there was a point to this where Joshua would, would tell the people to cripple the horses and burn the chariots of the cities they would conquer. Yes, it's cruel, but don't you think the point is, hey, we are not building an army. We're not taking their weapons. We're not taking their horses to build a massive army, cripple the horses. Um, again, in a uh, sad, but the point is trust in God, not a military uh, that is massive in size. Um, clearly, we could say that God didn't like the fighting. Okay, so for example, David. I mean, think of all the people that David killed. And he had the great idea to build a temple. And interesting, the prophet Nathan said, great idea. And then he talked to God and said, nope, not a great idea. And uh, came back and told David. And the reason was because I am a soldier and have shed too much blood. Don't you think God wanted to make a point here? Hey, this was never my plan. This was not the ideal, this uh, brutality. And so I'm going to do something here that will make a statement. Okay, and that is, David, man of blood, I'm not going to allow you to build the temple. Okay, lots of verses we could put in here. Just one that I like from uh, Psalm 46. Come and see what the Lord has done. See what amazing things he's done on earth. He stops wars all over the world. He breaks bows, destroys spears, and sets shields on fire. Stop fighting, he says, and know that I am God, supreme among the nations. Okay, God certainly did not like the fighting. Now, how do we explain the fighting? Well, I think uh, what a helpful model, perhaps, for understanding this is to see God as a patient missionary. Um, Alden Thompson told this story uh, some time ago about uh, uh, missionaries who went to Africa. And in this particular culture, the men beat their women. And they beat their women to show them that they loved them. Okay, that was the, that was the tradition. That's what was done. And the missionaries were uh, offended by this and felt like, well, this is not right for the men to beat their women. And so they convinced the men, some of them anyway, that they should not be beating their women. Okay, and uh, what do you think happened? Women complained. How come our husbands don't love us anymore? Uh, the point of that story is, um, how do you reach people that are so entrenched in a certain uh, mindset? You might need to bring them along gradually. Okay, it might be too much too fast. You might have to slowly uh, try to move in the right direction. That's what we did last time in the Bible study. We talked about polygamy, how God allowed for polygamy. But if you're going to take a second wife, do it this way. Okay, and he gradually moved them towards the ideal. We talked about the divorce laws and where Jesus said, yep, 
Moses gave you divorce laws, but that was because of the hardness of your heart. Now let's do it a better way. Uh, we just read where Jesus said, yep, there was a time for eye for an eye, but no longer. Last time we talked about the practice of private vengeance and how God, rather than abolishing it, gave them cities of refuge. Again, it was a step in the right direction. Slavery. Okay, again, rather than abolishing it, too much, too fast, we have things that were put in place, principles, that would have destroyed the practice of slavery. Okay, had they been implemented. Okay, and we talked uh, extensively last time about uh, women. So we have all of these things where we should be, again, in Christ, um, considering all of these things a, a thing of the past, and we're no longer going to practice that way. And again, the danger is, and I think I quoted this last time, with regards to war, if we hold the Old Testament and the passages to kill as, yep, equally applying to our time today, then we can take a position here of uh, perhaps someone like Jerry Falwell, who would say, you've got to kill the terrorists before the killing stops, and I'm for the president to chase them all over the world. If it takes 10 years, blow them all away in the name of the Lord. Now, that's problematic. In the name of Jesus? Um, who's our authority here for blowing them away? Again, uh, words of Jesus here. You, you, you just, Jesus never gave a command to conquer enemies. He gave commands to serve them, to love them, to pray for them. Okay, and he said, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight. My kingdom is not of this world. Okay, and uh, these are some of the most challenging things to put into practice. How do you put these words into practice? Jesus' words, if one of the occupation troops, and remember that's the national enemy, if one of the occupation troops forces you to carry his pack one mile, carry it two miles. Okay, how do you put that into practice today? But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If anyone hits you on one cheek, let him hit the other one too. How do we put that into practice? If someone takes your coat, let him have your shirt as well. Give to everyone who asks you for something, and when someone takes what is yours, do not ask for it back. Do for others just what you want them to do for you. Love your enemies, do good to them. Okay, are we doing these things? Lend and expect nothing back. Do not judge others. Do not condemn others. Okay, again, we who call ourselves Christians, we have the very clear words of Christ uh, that this is how we are to live in the world. Okay, one mistake I think would be to call this weakness. Again, is it weakness if the Roman soldier would ask you to carry his pack one mile? Carrying it that second mile, it actually is an aggressive action in a sense. Or turning the other cheek. Okay, it is refusing to be defined by the way the other person is treating you. So it's not a, not a submissive, uh, weak action. I think that's one misconception. But we need a little uh, history here, and I wish we had more time to go through this. But for 300 years after the death of Christ, the church was the persecuted minority. I mean, it was inconceivable uh, for Christians to see themselves as the power over that would persecute 
or have military campaigns. Okay, but all of that changed in 313, and, and really uh, this cannot be uh, underemphasized here. That, uh, well, in 312, Constantine legalized Christianity. Some of you may know he had this vision, and it's debated whether this was real, whether he did this for political reasons, but the vision was uh, he saw the, the letters of Christ uh, on a shield. Okay, and so Christianity was legalized, and this really was the beginning of authorized violence in the name of Christianity. In 380 AD, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, was a crime not to be a Christian. Okay, and then we have a long period of the militant church, where the, ch the church was a, a military vehicle to conquer the world. And uh, just a quote from Charlemagne here, if, if there is any one of the Saxon people, so they're conquering the lands, lurking, lurking among them unbaptized, and if he scorns to come to baptism and stay a pagan, let him die. Okay, so become a Christian or die. Okay, again, were these the methods of uh, Jesus' evangelism? Or do we get this at all from the Gospels? And then, uh, again, we, could, we should spend a lot more time about this, but the, the concept here where inflicting temporal pain to help someone to avoid eternal pain is justified. And so we have countless people burned at the stake, tortured, because again, well, we're trying to save your soul, okay? But uh, that, that was kind of a mindset. And, and even in the reformers, some of you might remember last year we talked about uh, Calvin, uh, who had Michael Servetus killed because he didn't have a Trinitarian view, okay? So even this mindset would extend into the uh, reformers. And so just imagine, it seems unthinkable really that the cross, which should be the greatest testimony to the fact that our God is self-sacrificial, giving, that God in fact does love his enemies, was put on shields and is used as a symbol now of a military conquest. Okay, it's, it's amazing. And I'm interested to conclude here with a last quote. If you're looking for a wonderful book to read during the summer, uh, a book called The Myth of a Christian Nation by Greg Boyd, uh, certainly one of the most meaningful that I have read, and um, he describes his experience several years ago. And I'll just read it. There's so much to talk about here. I would also just say that there's a video. It's about 60 minutes uh, long that is up on the website that goes into this whole uh, concept that I think is very good. So if you have time, I'd encourage you to check that out. But Greg Boyd said, I happened to visit a July 4th worship service at a certain megachurch. At center stage in this auditorium stood a large cross next to an equally large American flag. The congregation sang some praise choruses mixed with such patriotic hymns as God Bless America. The climax of the service centered on a video of a well-known Christian military general giving a patriotic speech about how God had blessed America and blessed its military troops. Triumphant military music played in the background as he spoke. The video closed with a scene of a silhouette of three crosses on a hill with an American flag waving in the background. Majestic, patriotic music now thundered. Suddenly, four fighter jets appeared on the horizon, flew across the crosses, and then split apart. As they roared over the camera, the words, God bless America, appeared on the screen in front of the crosses. The congregation responded with roaring applause, catcalls, and a standing ovation. I saw several people wiping tears from their eyes. Indeed, as I remained frozen in my seat, I grew teary-eyed as well, but for entirely different reasons. 
I was struck with horrified grief. Thoughts raced through my minds. How could the cross and the sword have been so thoroughly fused without anyone seeming to notice? How could Calvary be associated with bombs and missiles? How could the kingdom of God be reduced to this sort of violent, nationalistic tribalism? Has the church progressed at all since the Crusades? And so again, when we think about the cross, we have tended to associate the cross with one thing, one very important thing, I should add, and that is our personal salvation. But the cross is not very often seen as a way of living. In other words, that if God himself is the kind of person who is self-sacrificial, who would lay down his life for his enemies, who would pray for them even as he died, Jesus didn't just come and give us these commands and go back up to heaven. He lived it all the way, and it led to his death. Okay? And this is the way of life for a Christian. Christianity looks like this. It looks like Calvary. So uh, the, the intermixing of Christianity instead of self-giving and serving to having power over and persecuting, um, well, we can have a discussion about just war and all of that, but we just shouldn't call it Christianity. All right, let's pray. Father, I just pray that um, uh, I realize some of these uh, concepts, that these are difficult and can be offensive. I would just pray that we would uh, submit everything we believe about you to Jesus Christ, that we would allow Jesus to be our authority in all matters. I pray that each person here would be brought closer to you. Amen.